Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And as this podcast is airing, Carolyn, you and I will be in California. Sunny California, wearing shorts and halter tops. Sunglasses, riding in a convertible. With a, with a with giant lodge-brimmed hat blowing in the wind. That's right. None of that is actually happening. Yeah, none of that is actually happening. But we are excited to be going to Los Angeles for the Makers 2014 conference, which essentially is a gathering of powerful, slightly intimidating <laughs> women. And we have the privilege of going and hanging out with them for a couple of days. Yeah, and Kristen and I will be tweeting today from the conference. It, my tweets will probably mostly consist of how nervous I am. Um, oh, Lord, what do I talk about? Uh, my hands are sweating, things like that. Yeah, and if you want to follow the hashtag Makers2014 to see tweets from other people who will be at the conference, and you can follow along that way. But, Caroline, people might be wondering, Makers, what what is that? Yeah, Makers is actually, we have cited it on the podcast before, talking about very important women, but it's basically this digital video initiative to kind of raise awareness about some incredible women and the contributions they've made to our society at large. Yeah, it was started by a woman named Dylan McGee, and it kicked off with a documentary that aired on PBS called Makers, Women Who Make America. And I watched it the first time a while back, and I highly recommend it, at least at the time you could watch the whole thing. I think it's three parts on PBS, and it's just a a great overview of women's history in the United States. Yeah, and so the conference is serving to kind of take all of this amazing history that's been basically archived in one impressive place on the PBS website and put it into action, bringing all of these women together to talk about really amazing, important things. And if you want to find out more about Makers, you can just head over to Makers.com, where you probably are going to want to hang out for a while because they have a massive video archive of interviews with incredible women, and the incredible women we're going to focus on in today's podcast are trailblazing women in comedy, because Makers is actually working on a full-length documentary following women in the comedy industry. Which I cannot wait to see. Um, it's scheduled to air July 8th of this year, and it basically tracks the rise of women in comedy from the 70s to the 80s, all the way up to today, movies like Bridesmaids, things like that. Yeah, and it's going to include interviews with Chelsea Handler, Monique, Sarah Silverman, Lily Tomlin, Carol Burnett, and on and on and on. And so kind of to, because we're so excited about the documentary, but we can't watch it yet, we're going to talk about, uh, very briefly, about the history of women in the comedy industry. And first we have to start off with the tale as old as time, which is the assumption that women aren't funny. We just, we are not funny. Right. And... I think it's a, you can bust this myth with just common sense. You don't even have to bring up funny women or list funny women. You don't even have to look at anything like that. It's so easy to think about the fact that 
women traditionally are supposed to be in a more submissive role, right? We're supposed to be a little more polite, a little more quiet. Men are the ones who are supposed to get up in front of people and be funny and they can be loud and they can be dirty. And so if women never had the chance to get up and be funny, which they finally started doing in the 50s, 60s onward, um, you know, there, there was no way they could disprove that. But the most recent horrible... Uh, opinion column, basically, about this topic was the big one in 2007 from the late Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, he wrote a piece for Vanity Fair called Women Aren't Funny. And in pretty much any article that you read today talking about women in comedy, you hear about two things. You hear about Christopher Hitchens, Women Aren't Funny, (laughs) Vanity Fair piece, and then Bridesmaids Mm -hmm. every single time. And in a nutshell, Hitchens says that women aren't funny because of our more maternal natures. Uh, Evolutionarily, we just don't have a capacity for humor because we are, like you said, more submissive and are more kind of self-protective. And I don't even care to go in depth on it because the, the, the funny thing, haha, is that Hitchens' idea is by no means new, even though it got so much attention that people are still talking about it all the time. But hey, let's go back to, uh, I don't know, 1842, shall we? What happened in 1842? Well, Caroline, in 1842, a contributor to Graham's Magazine, an esteemed publication, I'm sure, claimed, quote, There is a body and substance to true wit with a reflectiveness rarely found apart from a masculine intellect. The female character does not admit of it. Interesting. Yeah. And in 1901, Harper's Bazaar asked, have women a sense of humor? Well, that is so original, Hitchens, not to disparage the work of someone who is no longer with us. I think it's okay to disparage it. Isn't that incredible, though? That's that's 1901, a Harper's Bazaar article basically positing the exact same thing. And by the way, these uh, are old magazine pieces uh, were cited in Kristen Anderson Wagner's Have Women a Sense of Humor? Comedy and Femininity in Early 20th Century Film. And beyond the Harper's Bazaar article, there are uh, other citations, for instance, in 1909, a newspaper saying that, uh, quote, you do not find much in women to arouse your sense of humor. Measured by the ordinary standards of humor, she's about as comical as a crutch or as comical as a tampon. <laughs> so what is it, though? I mean, because, like, I can understand how in 1909 women might have been seen as humorless compared to today. But I feel like everyone in 1909 would have been humorless yes. compared to today. My stereotype of that era is generally that everybody was coughing uncomfortably all the time. <clears throat> kind of the way my dad does when, like, something racy comes on TV. Yeah. Like, I just imagine early 20th century, late uh, 19th century, just everybody doing that all the time. Yeah, in my mind's eye, it just looks like a daguerreotype where it's all <laughs> sepia tones. Yeah, it's everything is Ken Burns' The Civil War. (laughs) But Anderson really eloquently nails how the late 19th century femininity constructs that we then hear bleeding into those articles in the early 1900s are at odds with comedy because during the Victorian era, you have this thing called the cult of true womanhood arising. And 
Anderson writes, the inherently aggressive nature of comedy is also diametrically opposed to the cultural idea of femininity as defined at the turn of the 20th century with its emphasis on submissiveness, deference and passivity. Comedians deliver punchlines and kill their audience. I mean, do you agree? Do you agree that comedy is opposed to the traditional idea of femininity? Yeah, I think it is, because when you even today for funny women on stage, there's still this even though we're breaking out of it more and more, there's still these questions of how pretty can you be? Mm -hmm. How like how much sex appeal can you deliver? Does it need to hinge on self-deprecation? Do you essentially need to mask your femininity in order to be accepted as someone who can be as funny as a dude. And a lot of uh, comedians, especially early comedians, would say yes. A lot of the women who were groundbreakers and trailblazers said that they absolutely had to dress a certain way, look a certain way, speak a certain way, so that men wouldn't be staring at them and being confused. One comedian said, you know, you can't look too sexy up there because you'll just confuse men as to whether they're supposed to laugh at you or, you know, ogle you. Yeah. And there's also the the issue, too, that that women comedy delivered by women is women's comedy. Right. Whereas guys on stage are just comedians. Right. They're just they're just being they're just being funny. Right. And I mean, that is uh, gender issues in a microcosm, ladies and gentlemen, that women are gendered. Male is neutral. Yeah. And it's this relationship with femininity, gender and comedy that makes it really significant what these groundbreaking, hilarious women have done and why it's, I don't know, meaningful to talk about comedy because just taken by itself comedy is such a powerful force for social critique whether we're talking about gender or talking about race or talking about i mean even george carlin words that you can and can't say Mm -hmm. right and nancy walker in a very serious thing women's humor in american culture points this out she says an essential purpose of humor is to call the norm into question the humor of those on the threshold is apt to reveal a perception of incongruity that not only questions the rules of culture but also suggests a different order Yeah, and there have been plenty of female comedians on stage and in film since the early 1900s. Um, But we're not really going to get into more of uh, women in Hollywood and comedy or even vaudeville and burlesque, which were early stages for women to do funnier acts, even though they usually had either a male sidekick or they would do it through song and dance routines. And instead, in this episode, we're really going to focus on women in the comedy industry, talking about doing stand-up, improv, sketch. And things really start to take off in the late 1950s and 60s with three women, Phyllis Diller, Elaine May, and a name will be familiar to probably all of you, Joan Rivers. Yeah, it's so funny to read about her early career taking off and becoming this kind of body comedian um, and thinking of her now where she's just talking about celebrity, young celebrity women and how awful their dresses are. Yeah, she's just the insult comic. Yeah. Just always being snarky. Right. And all of this is coming from the very heavily publicized We Killed the Rise of Women in American Comedy by Yael Cohen, 
Um, and it, her book was initially inspired by her 2009 Marie Claire article, which was basically an oral history talking to big names in comedy like Kathy Griffin, Roseanne, Joy Behar, and Janine Garofalo. Yeah, and she was just asking them about issues of attractiveness on stage, whether you had to downplay it, whether stand-up is as much of a boys club as you would assume it is. Answer, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And kind of how they banded together to break through the ranks, break through the what's termed the crass ceiling. Yep, mm-hmm. that exists. Um, and so the, the first person, though, that Cohen really highlights is Phyllis Diller, who was a Bob Hope style comic who intentionally wore unflattering outfits and she was always dissing on her husband Fang and her sister-in-law who she called Captain Blood. And I'm laughing because I feel so old saying this out loud. But Caroline, in preparation for this podcast, I watched some Phyllis Diller stand up yesterday. And I was at home alone laughing out loud <laughs> to the Ed Sullivan show, you know. She was funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, she was also shocking in yeah. her in her funniness. And what's funny about the way that she her humor was very much I wouldn't say it's observation based the way that a lot of modern comedy is, but it was very much like talking about her life and using that as a base of humor. But what's funny about talking about her husband and making him out to be this brute is in in real life, IRL, it was actually her husband who encouraged her to pursue this career in comedy. Like, they needed extra money. She was working these various jobs. And he was the one who was like, you're funny. Go be a comedian. Yeah. And she ended up becoming the first female stand-up to garner mass mainstream appeal. And it's also significant that she didn't get her start through vaudeville, which was the, at that point, the route that you took to get any kind of notoriety as a, as a funny lady. She, and she didn't have a, you know, a male sidekick. You had someone like Gracie Allen at the time who was very popular, but she was sort of a comic foil to her husband on yeah. stage. So, uh, I mean, Diller just went out on her own. I mean, she found an agent and started doing these clubs and her, her style is so old school and that it's all just like set up punchline, mm-hmm. set up punchline. I mean, she doesn't stop. Yeah. And she'll she'll just laugh at herself the whole time. And it's incredible, like how many like she can just keep going and going and going. Yeah. But uh, I liked reading about how she found her her style, her niche, her voice, because, you know, people didn't really know what to do with her. They didn't know what to make of her. She was very skinny, very small. Um, you know, on stage, she often camouflaged her body, but, you know, she didn't want to be, she didn't want to be seen for that. But when she first started out, you know, people were putting her on stage in these crazy outfits and having her sing and try to be sexy. And it was just like, no, that's not, that's not what Phyllis Diller's all about. But she definitely kept wearing as unflattering of clothes as possible. And she constantly throughout her routines makes fun of her body. But when she's talking off stage, she said something along the lines of like, well, I have a fabulous figure. Yeah, yeah. But women wouldn't like me mm-hmm. if I come out looking like I do in real life, which is like a model. Yeah. And she said that she basically wore an equivalent to like a potato sack because to cover up her breasts so that it would just be assumed that to go along with her slim figure that she was also flat chested, that it just worked to her favor to her whole her whole bit. Yeah. And so just sort of as a sign of the times when she was starting to really make a name for herself. Uh, Cohen cites a 1961 review in the New York Times, which says, 
Phyllis Diller, who was installed for a four-week run at the Bonsoir in Greenwich Village, is the leading member of that rare breed of nightclub entertainer, the female stand-up comic. But don't you think you would still hear that, something like that today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I feel like somebody like Sarah Silverman would be discussed in this exact same manner or tone. Like the way, I mean, you know, I won't go off into a whole Sarah Silverman thing, but you know, just the way that she was talked about at that roast, I can't even remember who it was for. Was it Charlie Sheen? But anyway, like everybody who got up there and who picked on her was picking on her age. It was like a very like, Wow, that's the only joke you have to make about this particular person who happens to be a woman. Good job, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible how much progress has been made. And yet still, I mean, even here, if we go out to stand up shows to open mics, there are far more guys who are going to get up on stage. Well, yeah. And a part of that is I can't remember who said this, but they said something to the effect of like, you know, a woman, if she gets booed or nobody laughs, she's going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm not funny. Whereas a man will just kind of keep pushing through and be like, get better through the process of just continuing to go up, having that confidence in himself, like, oh, screw them. I'm fine. I'm funny. Well, that's interesting, too. Like, speaking of Sarah Silverman, I forget who was telling the story about when she was briefly on SNL and they were let go. And that night... Silverman's friend wanted to just go out and get drunk and forget about everything. And Silverman went out and did stand up and that and her friend was saying, like, well, then that's when I knew she was going to make it because we had just been canned by Lauren Michaels and she wanted to go do stand up, which is like the most brutal thing that you can do to yourself. Right. Yeah. Well, so another big name we have to talk about is Elaine May and her roots really in comedy could not be more different from Phyllis Diller's. Yeah, she was, uh, she had a little more of cerebral theatery roots. I think she came up in Chicago in Second City when they were first forming as more of a, a, not so much a comedic group, but just kind of these improvised plays. Yeah, sort of absurdist type performances that weren't necessarily meant to be comedy. They were just meant to portray life. Yeah, yeah. And she hit the big time in 1959 with her like improviser partner, Mike Nichols. And in We Killed, Cohen notes how uh, their dynamic was sharp, neurotic, and unabashedly intellectual, making a strong departure from the era's other male duos. And Elaine May eventually broke out on her own some, but and I had to Google image her when mm-hmm. I was reading about her. And I then I recognized her from seeing her in some old films, but she never really, um, I, I don't think she's definitely not as much of a household name as someone like Phyllis Diller. Right. Well, they write about how she, you know, hates publicity. She doesn't want to do all that stuff. When the New York Times asked to interview her, she said, sure, as long as I can interview myself. And um, I think it was Paul Dooley was talking about how much he just freaking loved her interview because she was making fun of everything. You know, she she wrote the question, you know, what is most important to you as an actress? And then she wrote the answer. Good grooming. Well, Dooley talks about how he like doubled over laughing because she didn't give, you know, a good gosh darn about grooming at all. And so. I think that was more of her way. She didn't want the publicity. She didn't want the stardom. She just kind of wanted to do her own thing. And I also thought it was uh, interesting, too, how in um, people's interviews about her, a couple brought up that she had a 
reputation among people who didn't know her for being really domineering and rude. And essentially that if she didn't like how a scene was going or something, she like any other male performer would say, stop, you know, like she eventually like voiced, essentially voiced her own concerns yet. And this is something that Carol Burnett brings up as well. Uh, yet that was like, if, if you were a woman doing that, speaking up for yourself, then you were penalized. Yeah. One of the actors said when he worked with her, like, you know, she was great. She was professional. She was a sweetheart. She was funny. She was really smart. And he never saw that, that rumored, you know, B wordness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but in terms of B wordness, <laughs> Joan Rivers certainly embraces it. Um, she comes along a little later on uh, after Diller and Elaine May have made a name for themselves. And she becomes really the first female comic to kind of air her laundry about being a single woman with a mom who wants her to get married yesterday. And significantly, she does not try to hide her attractiveness. Right. And writing about her act uh, in Q magazine, Eugene Bow writes, Joan Second City Rivers is a very funny femme in search of an act. Her unmeasured monologue contains some of the sharpest, smartest talk to proceed out of the mouth of a babe since Elaine May. Female comics are usually horrors who desex themselves for a laugh. And so this writer sounds like so relieved that there is a woman who's good to look at while she's talking. Yeah. And, and I also went back and watched some Joan Rivers stand up. And while personally, I kind of can't stand Joan Rivers today because it's just, you know, I, I got her shtick. All right. You, you're not going to like much of any way that a woman looks and you always have a one liner. But she was funny, like her observational humor about relationships and dating dynamics from the 1960s honestly could be delivered on a stage today and still hold up. Yeah. In terms of like, you know, uh, she she was talking going on and on in the bit that I was watching about. Uh, age where when she was 26 and single, it was like she was 90. Whereas if you were a 90 year old guy, you're still somehow dateable. Yeah. Those kinds of things. But um, <laughs> so we've been doing all of this talking about some amazing trailblazers in comedy. And we're going to talk about a few more when we come back from this quick break. And now back to the show. So when we left off, we had talked about three women who made it big more on the stage than on the screen. That's Phyllis Diller, Elaine May and Joan Rivers. But now we're up to 1968 when the Carol Burnett show launches. And this is you might have seen it on Nick at Night before, uh, but this was a huge deal. And since this is our makers of comedy episode, we should note that Carol Burnett is a maker. Yeah, she is. And I love her and my father loves her. And I bought my dad uh, Carol Burnett DVDs for his birthday this past year. And we sat around and watched them. And and it's great because uh, you can really nerd out over Carol Burnett because the DVDs are not only the show itself, but a lot of interviews and talking to her and the rest of the cast and all that good stuff. And and the thing that I came away with from that was, uh, you know, just that Carol Burnett's an amazing person. You know, yeah. she's super talented, super funny. She has such a great uh, instinct for comedy and such a great vision for what she wanted her show to be. And she is the first woman to host a TV variety show. And uh, kind of funnily enough, she grew up in Hollywood, but then moved to New York 
where she ended up getting Broadway gigs, which then eventually led to a supporting actress role with CBS. And she was really successful with CBS. So she ended up with a contract that has stipulation in it that she could have her own show and any kind of show that she wanted. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted a variety show. She wanted a variety show, and CBS was like, "Oh, uh, uh, wait, wait, no, uh, no, I don't think uh, you're you have lady parts. I don't think you can do that. That's a man thing." Um, so they actually pitched her a pilot for a show called "Here's Agnes." Here's Agnes. Come now, while I would be curious to watch a show called "Here's Agnes." That I mean, like, what a letdown that would have been. Yeah, that's just going to be her. I just picture her in, like, the Kramer role, like, opening the door every day, and everybody's like, here's Agnes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, old Agnes. And there's, like, a like a horn tooting in the background whenever that happens. Um, but she stuck to her guns, though, and said, oh, hey, actually, no, contractually, you are bound to give me the kind of show that I want. So they had to do the variety show, and she talks about how it was so apparent when they first started filming, that CBS did not think it had a snowball's chance in hell of lasting. But lo and behold, it ended up running from 1967 to 1978. Yeah, she ended up earning six Emmys and two Golden Globes for her show. And I mean, what, what, like, that's like pie in the face of CBS, you know, just like... This show was so successful, and it was run by a woman. Imagine that. Yeah, and Splitsider says that Burnett became the first breakout female sketch player in TV history and paved the way for women in sketch comedy. Yeah, and she, this woman, I mean, she was so willing to dive into any type of character. I mean, whether it's the ditzy secretary or, or whoever, I mean, she could pull it off. Now, she did, like, the more serious kind of you know, cheesy musical numbers on the show as well. But, I mean, she was obviously so talented. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's still funny today to watch. And meanwhile, and probably partially due to the success of Carol Burnett, you also have shows coming on the air like Mary Tyler Moore that launches in 1970, the spinoff Rhoda that comes out in 1974, and significantly in 1975, the very first episode of Saturday Night Live. Right. And Saturday Night Live is kind of the show that everybody talks about when you're going to talk about women in comedy. It's seen, it's a part, plays a big part in Cohen's book as well. Um, but those first, those original SNL women, Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman are just kind of held up as like the end all be all, you know, the great trailblazers of comedy. Whereas the show itself maybe is not as welcoming. Yeah, because uh, especially for someone like Jane Curtin, like whose role commonly was to play sort of a straight woman or an attractive bimbo. um, And not everyone on the show thought that women were capable of comedy either. Right. And SNL, you know, I mean, SNL has been in the news again for uh, not having any women of color. Uh, and so they recently hired two African-American lady writers and an actress. So there's that. Yeah. So Shira Zamata um, became, I mean, like <laughs> it must have been so intimidating for her to premiere on Saturday Night Live because the entire Internet was talking about her being the first black woman hired since Maya Rudolph left, what, six years ago. And... 
It's almost like the entire weight of black women in comedy was placed upon her shoulders. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing that you said earlier about, like, you know, women apparently can't, you know, the the stereotype is that women can't speak for everyone, Mm -hmm. that only men can speak for everyone. And it's the same thing that, like, surely black women can't speak for all people. That's so strange. What a strange notion. They're not only women, but they're black, and that is weird. Yeah, I mean, they're even more marginalized. I mean, talk about having a, a tough road to hoe in comedy, not only, you know, as women, but also as women of color, where even more so it's assumed that they're, I guess, I don't know, like comedic worldview is going to be too narrow or something like that. But, but which is mind blowing of the fact that one of the reasons why SNL started searching desperately and <laughs> quickly for um, a, a black comic is that Keenan Thompson, who is, you know, a black comic on Saturday Night Live, basically said, oh, listen, I'm not going to play any more black women on the show because I'm sick of it. Fair enough. But then he said, well, and they can't bring any any women on to, you know, because there aren't enough who are prepared to do this. Which, come on, man, don't do that. Yeah, I I mean, I didn't. I read that. I didn't keep up with all the, the discussions about it online. Was there any possibility that he was trying to light a fire under the SNL people? Or was he honestly like, eh, there's not enough good black comics? I think he could have stopped at, I'm not going to yeah. dress in drag because you don't have That would have delivered women. the message. Yeah, I, I think that because it's like, hey, that's good. Oh, wait, no, that's sexist. <laughs> um, but it's also significant, too, that they brought on LaKendra Tukes and Leslie Jones as the first two black women writers on the show, because the writers matter as well. It's not just the people on stage. Right. Like they one writer pointed out that, you know, when they had Kerry Washington host, it's like the only roles they wrote for her were black women. There were no kind of, quote unquote, race neutral uh, character. She was Oprah. She was Michelle Obama. You know, she couldn't just be like a woman. Being funny. And they didn't even do a scandal parody. Yeah. What? Yeah. That's, that was, that's also just <laughs> surprising. Well, so, um, you know, to, to bring this episode full circle, you know, we mentioned bridesmaids at the top of the podcast being like the one counterpoint that humanity has against the women aren't funny argument. And, I have to say, like, you know, as funny as Bridesmaids was, as fantastic as Kristen Wiig and her whole crew is, um, I'm so over that argument. I'm so over people holding up Bridesmaids as like, oh, no, wait, but look, women are funny. No, no, screw you. Why? Why does Bridesmaids have to be the only sole example of women being funny? Well, I think it's significant that if anything, it puts some dollars behind this argument that not only are women funny, but people will also pay to go see them. Yeah. Because by its fifth week, it ended up surpassing the um, all of the profits for knocked up. Right. Um, so I think that's good. But like you, I am tired of and I'm sure Kristen Wiig probably is, too, tired of bridesmaids always being held up and referenced as it's like, OK, but yeah, we get it. But what's next? Yeah, we got to keep moving forward. And I think we are we. So you and I, are, you know, the, the queens of comedy. Uh, but I do think that things are are moving forward, even with like the hire of Sashir Zamata, even with us seeing more female driven sitcoms um and even just the existence of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler being at the places that they are in 
yeah. there, you know, Hollywood, yeah. not just comedy. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, it's like the, the Christopher Hitchens essay in Bridesmaids are just, it's like tumbleweed, just like continually rolling through. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sick of it, but I mean, you, you make a point that it is the money is key because honestly, like I think people in Hollywood would film anything if they knew that they would make a ton of money off of it. And so it's, it's, it is wonderful to have women like Kristen Wiig and Amy Poehler and Tina Fey who are just raking in the awards, raking in the dough, proving that men and women alike will sit down in front of the TV screen or the movie screen and watch them. Yeah. And, and I also want to give props, too, to people like Mindy Kaling and even Lena Dunham for, I don't know, providing more diversity in what women on screen look like as mm-hmm. well. I think things are getting better um but we definitely need more of it oh and i really want to shout out shameless plug for something that i personally love dearly there is speaking of female driven sitcoms a new sitcom on comedy central called broad city produced by amy poehler and starring two amazing hilarious feminist funny women you should totally check it out and and that hopefully can you know tie you over until the makers documentary on women in comedy comes out later this year. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it, and I can't wait to hear from people when they watch it. Yeah, and if you want uh, to learn more about some other groundbreaking women that we didn't have a chance to talk about, if you head over to makers dot com, you can watch interviews with Margaret Cho, Ellen DeGeneres, Zoe Deschanel, and one of also my personal favorites, Tignataro. She is amazing. Yeah, those, I, I think all of the makers videos are so awesome. I, you know, I, I'm gushing, but I, I think it's a great way to spend your time. Well, it's inspiring to hear the stories the of, of these women's, I don't know, career paths and how they got through similar challenges that we face. Right, because I think, you know, whether it's the first uh, female firefighter in New York or whether it's a businesswoman or whether it is a comedian, you know, you listen to what they say and what they had to overcome and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine that. But in so many respects, so much of that still rings true. Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend going over to Makers.com. Um, but we also want to hear from listeners about your favorite women in comedy, because I know that we by no means offered a comprehensive list. So. Write to us, tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast, hit us up on Facebook, let us know who some of your favorites are, and maybe we can put together a gallery or something like that on uh, stuffmomnevertoldyou.com to share in all of the lady funniness together. How's it? How's that grammatically? <laughs> Perfect. Is that good? Flawless. Awesome. Well, we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now, in fact. <laughs> Well, I've got an email here from Shelby about our Stuck on the Sidelines podcast. She writes, Hi, Kristen and Caroline. I'm a new listener to your podcast and have come to believe we'd be great friends. Excellent, Shelby. She writes, uh, I just listened to your Stuck on the Sidelines podcast and was surprised you didn't mention sports anchor Erin Andrews. She's super smart and got her big stardom on ESPN College Game Day. She is, of course, beautiful, but also smart and holds her own among the many men she works alongside in anchoring football games and baseball games. Her latest post-game interview with Sherman from the Seahawks is one of the many examples that Aaron displays of her composure and ability to deal with the loud and obnoxious moments male athletes compose. She also says another clip worth checking out is when Coach Chip Kelly 
of the Oregon Ducks came to her defense and told a few college guys to, quote, shut up when she was trying to interview him. She is well-respected by coaches and athletes alike. And I wanted to read Shelby's letter as well because Aaron Andrews has an interview that's come out in Elle magazine, which is kind of just a condensed version of the Stuck on the Sidelines podcast in which she calls out the double standards of uh, being a, a woman in football reporting, saying, you know, yeah, I care about how I look, but no one asks the male commentators how much their suits cost. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how big the suits are. Uh, she was like, you know, those suits are huge. They cost so much. They're so big. So big. And the tie is so shiny. Yeah. So thanks, Shelby. And hey, welcome to the podcast. Much shiny. So big. Wow. Um, I have a letter from Sarah. This is actually kind of a throwback. She just listened to our episode on calling women or people crazy. Um, so Sarah writes, I've been called crazy before. My friends have been called crazy. I've even heard strangers being called crazy in public places by boyfriends, husbands, or other men. And it drives me, well, crazy. I want to thank you for talking about this issue. I think many women don't even realize how men gaslight them into thinking their emotions and feelings are nonsensical. I've had this conversation with friends before. Inevitably, there comes that epiphany and self-reflection to thinking back on the men who might have done this in the past. Luckily, once you're aware of this, it's much easier to blow it off and realize it is just a distraction and manipulation tool used by men. After listening to the podcast, I read an article that mentions an interview with Taylor Swift in Glamour in which she imparts some dating advice. Lo and behold, she gives us some advice on not being called crazy. Specifically, she's quoted as saying, Never yell. Silence speaks so much louder than screaming tantrums. Never give anyone an excuse to say that you're crazy. Although I agree that yelling and screaming matches in relationships aren't anyone's idea of a perfect union, the fact that she avoids being called crazy at all costs is troubling. Hopefully she does express her opinions and doesn't back down from her feelings without yelling, but I have a feeling that it's probably not the message her young fans will get from that quote. So thank you for writing in, Sarah, and also welcome to the podcast. And I'm a little surprised that Taylor Swift didn't instead say, like, never yell, just write all of your feelings into a song that you'll then broadcast on the radio about how terrible your boyfriend is. Maybe? And now, also, uh, Taylor Swift is going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> but oh, poor you. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. Uh, thanks to everybody who's written into us, though. MomStuffDiscovery.com is where you can send us all of your letters. You can also find all of our social media links, videos, podcasts, and blog posts over at the greatest website ever launched, StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by Lynda.com. Lynda.com offers thousands of engaging, easy-to-follow video tutorials taught by industry experts to help you learn software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access. Try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash momstuff.